Well, before we really jump into this right away, I just want to take a moment and just say, um, you know, every year I feel like Thanksgiving just comes and it goes so fast. You know, it's like here, each turkey, and before you know it, it's time for something new, it's something fresh. And um, our neighbors right across the street, they got Christmas lights up outside, ready to roll. I mean, they're ready to go to this next season right now. My wife and I were talking about it. We got a chance to go to my sister's house in North Carolina and have Thanksgiving with our family. And it, it just happens so fast, you know? And so I just wanted to take a moment. And um, this morning, I was in all the services I've been part of this morning, just reflecting on how thankful I am to be a part of this church. Um, you know, watching that video just shows me, like, man, what some of the things that, that happened here at Mount Horeb are just so special and so amazing. And, um, whether you've been here for the first time today or you've been here for a very, very long time, don't take this for granted, what God is doing here. It's exciting. It's really, really amazing. And um, over Thanksgiving, I just wanted you guys to know that I'm really, really thankful for you. And I'm thankful for all that God allows us to do here at this church. And so before we rush into this next thing, and before we start the Advent series today, I just want to take a moment and just tell God and tell everybody in this room just how thankful I am to be a part of this church and all the things that God is doing. It's really, really, really great. Um, but as you probably have felt like I've felt, I mean, already, we, you can't help it. We're, we're, we're moving quickly to the next season and stage of life for this year, Christmas. You know, it's, it's probably all around us. My wife is chomping at the bit for a Christmas tree to be up, for it to be decorated or ready to roll. I mean, you probably feel it just like me. When I was a kid, I remember Christmas so vividly. I had, I had a, an awesome family that celebrated Christmas really, really great. And uh, one of my favorite things about Christmas growing up is that we, my, we would always go to my grandparents' house in Indiana, and my grandmother had this, this porcelain white nativity set that always sat on this table next to the Christmas tree. It was kind of a big square uh, coffee table, and it always sat right there every Christmas. And um, my family, we'd, we, would, we did Christmas you know, presents and whatnot on Christmas Eve, so sue me, but we did. And um, so what we would do is we would often, we would go to church for Christmas Eve services, and then we would come back home, and you know, before, uh, as all the grandkids wanted to do, move into the next thing, the exciting thing, there was always a couple other things we had to do. Sometimes it was eating, it was like, seriously, I don't want to eat, and then there would be the other thing we got to do, and the thing that we always did that when I look back now, I'm so thankful for, but at the time I was like, another bump in the road. All the grandkids would gather around in the living room, and a piece of the nativity set was given to each one of the grandkids. And so this white porcelain set would be given to each one of us, and before we could do anything else, before any presents were open, before we moved on, um, each one of the grandkids were given one of these pieces. And so some of us, we would get like, like a normal piece of the nativity. You'd get like Joseph or Mary or whatever. And then some of us, you know, we would get like the obscure one, like the camel or the donkey, you know, those kinds of things. And so each person got a piece. And... What we would do then is we would take turns taking these pieces of the nativity and setting them up on the, on the table there next to the tree. And for each grandkid that came up to put the piece down, we have to say somehow how this piece somehow contributed to the story. You know, how did this piece contribute to, to Jesus in the manger? And, and so some of them were easy. You, know, you had Joseph, and so you're explaining that. But then you had like the donkey, and it was like, he gave some hay for baby Jesus to lay. And you're like, they had to make up stuff. But it was such a cool experience. Then I couldn't stand it. It was just one more thing that was in the way of getting to what I really wanted to get to. But I look back now, and it's such a special time. So all the pieces would eventually be set up, and you'd have this section in the middle where someone, and it was usually a parent in the room, would come, and they would have Jesus in the manger, the white porcelain Jesus, and of course come and then set Jesus right smack in the middle of the nativity set. And there'd be some word that would be spoken about the importance of this moment right now. And usually there'd be a reading of, of, the, of the biblical story of, of Jesus' birth and again, all the grandkids are like, come on, let's move on, let's move on. But my family and my parents and my grandparents were so good at wanting us to understand and realize that this was not about gifts. 
This was not about trees. This was not about food. This was not about cookies. This was not about anything else other than the center of this nativity set. All of this, everything, it was all because of Jesus. It was all because of his birth. And if you can feel it like I can feel it, we have begun to move into this new, this new time of the season. And over the next month, I mean, we're going to get really, really busy with all kinds of stuff. Shopping will take place, wrapping and gifts and decorating trees and all kinds of things. And this is my wife's favorite time of year. She loves it. And the thing is, my wife loves surprises, like giving surprises, receiving surprises, just surprises of all kinds. She loves them. I can't stand surprises. It's not that I don't like them. It's just that it takes too long. <laughs> because for me, I'm like, okay, listen, I know we're 10 days out from Christmas, but just one exchange would be really fun. Like just, just open this. I just want you to see, you know, and, and we, I have to wrestle with every single year because I just, I love, but the anticipation just kills me. But the anticipation is what makes Christmas so wonderful, isn't it? I mean, people like me, like we ruin it. Like let the tension be there. Let, let it exist. And, and this anticipation, this excitement that builds up into the coming of Christmas, this is what Christmas is about. In fact, this season we're entering into, this Advent season, this is what this Advent season is about. The surprise is all a part of Christmas. In sixth grade, I had my, my best Christmas ever, my most exciting Christmas. And the reason was is because my, my dad came to me before Christmas and said, hey, listen, uh, for the next coming weeks, I, I do not want you to go into the garage. Something special is happening in there, and you can't go into the garage. So, of course, as a sixth grade kid, what do I want to do? I want to go in the garage. But my dad's super smart. He, like, covered the window in the garage and, like, kept it all silent and stuff, and I was not allowed to go in there. And so my dad would be in the garage working on something, and we'd all be in the house, and my mom, like, seriously, dad's serious. Do not go into the garage. And so I obeyed this time, and I didn't go into the garage, and I had to work really hard at it, though. And so for the coming weeks, I was just building up, building up, and, I, and all I could think about was, like, what is in there? Like, what is happening? This is so exciting. I cannot wait to see this surprise. I've got to know what's going on. And so sure enough, Christmas came, and we sat down and began to open gifts, and I came to this one gift, and as I opened it up, I got into the middle of it, and I was excited, and there was a note inside of it, and it said, hey, go to your room. I was like, great, so I ran to my room, and in my room, there was another gift, and I opened that gift, and it told me to go to another place. There was like four or five boxes that I would open and send me to all places in the house, and I finally get to the final box, and guess what it said? Go to the garage. I was like, finally, the garage. So sure enough, everybody followed me, and I ran to the garage, and I opened the garage door, and I swung the door open, and I looked inside, and right smack in the middle of the garage was this huge, six-foot-tall iguana cage my dad had built. Now, I was a bit of a reptile dork, okay, in middle school, and I'm full admittance right now, and I had this iguana, and so he gotten very, very large for the cage he was in, so my dad spent weeks, who knows how long, building this, this cage for my iguana. Had a huge door that opened up, and stuff. it was so cool. And I was so surprised, but we were even more surprised, and my dad was surprised too. He did not measure the door frame to get it into my room once he built it. <laughs> so I'm not joking. We had to go through the window to get it into the room so the iguana could actually live in the cage, and it was surprising for everybody. <laughs> but there's something about Christmas, surprises like this, and the buildup and the tension of waiting, anticipating that is so fun. You see, at the heart of Christmas is one big, fat, cosmic surprise. Not just today in 2017 as we wait for Christmas, that is surprising, but certainly a long time ago, there was a huge surprise that took place that nobody anticipated. And that particular surprise changed the world. You know, the Israelite people, for, for most of their history, have been waiting on the Messiah. They've been waiting on God to come and free them from all kinds of tyranny within their life. They were waiting for God to come and do something amazing. They believed he would. And so they waited and they anticipated and they were waiting for this, this arrival of God in the world to make a difference. 
And this is called Advent. The word Advent literally means the arrival. And they waited for this Messiah to show up and finally, and finally arrive. The truth is, here this morning, we are still in the Advent season. We literally are entering in over the next few weeks into the Advent season, but we as Christians too, we are not just waiting for when Jesus came the first time, we're actually now waiting for him to return. And when he returns, he will make all things right. See, the Advent season is not just about celebrating something that happened long ago in our past, but it's about what will happen in the future. We are Advent people who recognize that Jesus came, but not only did he come, but one day he will come again. And so we wait We anticipate. And when Jesus came, it certainly was a surprise. This truly is the most wonderful time of year. And not because of the gifts or the trees or the food or even the family. It is the most wonderful time of the year because we as Christians gather together and we recognize the Messiah has come. The hope of all the world has come in the form of a baby, Jesus. Now, I've heard this story so many times, I can't even tell you. (laughs) I've grown up in the church, and so I've heard this story every Christmas. I've preached about this story often. I've heard it told in other ways as well. And unfortunately, I've heard it so many times, I believe I've kind of lost the magic of, of what a surprise this was. I'm afraid that some of us, many of us in the room, have lost the magic of the birth of Jesus here at Christmas. It's bigger than maybe we remember. It's more important than maybe we actually recognize the coming of Jesus. It was the greatest cosmic surprise ever done. At the heart of Christmas, it's all about a surprise. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, this story is set up by the writer, and he's trying to give you a little context about what's going on in the world at this particular time when Jesus is born. And it's very, very important to understand. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the story begins like this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of all the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in the manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, again, you've probably heard this story so many times throughout your life if you've grown up in the church at all. But the story the writer's trying to get across here in Luke is very, very important to understand the context of Jesus' birth. Because before Jesus was born, the Roman world had expanded to a massive, massive amount. They were in control of most of the known world at this point in time. There was a Caesar named Julius Caesar who had come to power. And he had developed what is called Pax Romana, which literally means Roman peace. And what this meant was, literally, the Roman army would go from city to city, town to town, countryside to countryside. They would walk in with military might and take over. And they would give the people there a choice. You can either bow down to Caesar as Lord and pay him taxes, or you can die. Those are your choices. And this is how Rome began to build Pax Romana, the Roman peace. From place to place, military might after military might, a a fist and a sword. This is what they did. So Julius Caesar, he was actually known to be a deity. People believed him to be God himself. He was assassinated. Then his son, his, his adopted son, Caesar Augustus, who's in charge when Jesus comes to be born, he's now in charge. And people referred to him as the son of God which is interesting phrasing for those of us who live within the church. 
Augustus Caesar, the son of God, he demanded a decree that every person would have to travel back to the ancestral home and register there. Now, this was a power move. This was about taxes and control. And so for Mary and Joseph, a young couple engaged to be married, not only that, but mysteriously pregnant somehow by the Holy Spirit, and let alone living on a carpenter's wages, this was not an easy thing for them to do. When we think of senses, we think of somebody who's coming by the door with a clipboard, and you got to just answer a couple questions. But for them, they had to travel all the way across this place for a pregnant lady to get to this place was a very difficult task. But you didn't question Rome. You did whatever they said, and you did what Caesar said, because he was the son of God. You see, the power at this point in time within human history, it was about massive armies. It was about an iron fist. And the whole world played by the exact same kinds of rules. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? This is what power looked like. You do what I say or else. And so when Jesus comes along and he's born, when the advent of God's presence comes, when the great reveal finally happens, it is a complete and total utter surprise. Because most of the world would expect a God to come in the exact same kind of way. If he's powerful, he's going to show his might and his power just as Caesar would. And maybe even greater. But instead, when God comes to show his power, it's a surprise because Jesus did not come in any way the world would have expected. But Jesus' arrival reveals to us what God is actually like. See, the God of the universe is not some powerful ruler sitting on a throne somewhere far off. He's not sitting in some ivory tower trying to instill fear and ensure compliance. This is not what our God is like. He's not like Caesar. He's different. Our God is a God who comes near. Our God is a God who pulls on skin and walks among us and becomes a human himself. Our God is a God who's born into a stinky, disgusting barn where there is no room for him. There's no fanfare. There's no hoopla. When God comes, he comes humble and unassuming. You see, the surprise at Christmas is that the power that is offered to us is not like the power of the world. The power that changes the world doesn't look like control. and doesn't look like strength. The power that comes along that changes the world is a power that is sacrificial and it's selfless in nature. So I would pose a question for us today as we lead into this Advent season and this series here this morning, this reveal series It's an important question, and it's very simple. What does God look like to you? What does God look like to you? How has he been revealed to you? And the reason I think this is so important is because for many of us in this room this morning, the God that we understand, the God that has been revealed to us, is cosmically frustrated because we can't get things right. He's angry, and he's looking for a time to finally smite us for all the bad things that we've done. And when this is the kind of God that we understand, the kind of God that we know has a way of impacting the way we live our life. After I just graduated from college, I bought a a house here in Lexington, and I lived in that house with a couple of guys. You might know them, Nick Cunningham and a couple others. And uh, we lived in that house together, and we had awesome memories. And we were all pretty much a ministry who were living there. And we worked at the church here at Mount Horeb and some other places, and I was full-time doing middle school ministry. And I got a call from a friend that said that he had a friend that we didn't know that was looking for a place to live, and he just got out of the military and wouldn't know if he could come live with us. And we had an open room, so we called a house meeting, and everybody said, that sounds fine. Let's do that. 
So this individual moved into the house with us, and it came pretty apparent right away that we didn't necessarily jive as far as lifestyles and the way we saw the world and those kinds of things. And we talked about God a lot. We had students in our house all the time for small group, and so it was no, no you know, big surprise that we were followers of God and really wanted to live for him. But it became pretty apparent that somewhere along this individual's past history that he'd had a bad taste about who God was. And I remember him saying to us often, hey, listen, I know it's fine for you and it's good for you, but for me, I mean, God wants nothing to do with people like me. You need to understand that. So we kind of have a bit of an understanding in the house for that. Well, after he lived there for a while, one night, um, Nick and I had gone up on top of our roof because some high school students from Mount Horb had come by and toilet papered our house. And um, we decided we would steal their joy by running out as quick as we could and, and cleaning up all the toilet paper before they came by. And so, like, where did it all go? We'd be like, gotcha. So that's what we did. So we ran outside with a trash bag, cleaned everything up as quick as we could, and got on top of the roof with a jar of pickles and a water hose. <laughs> Because we're going to throw pickles at him and squirt water at him. That was going to be like, that's what you do when you're a youth pastor. So we got up on top of the roof, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited. And they, they came by, but they never got back out. They just drove on by. But not long after that, our roommate came home from Columbia, and he had been out for a long time that night. And he pulled up in the yard, and his music was blaring in his Jeep, and he got out, and he was intoxicated, clearly, and began to come through the house. They came onto the back porch, and we had gotten up on the roof by a ladder, and so he decided to climb up on the ladder on top of the roof as well. And our other roommate was holding the ladder so he didn't kill himself. And he finally got on top of the roof and came up front with us and sat down. And for the next hours, I'm talking midnight to probably 4 a.m., we had this conversation on top of the house that he had been thinking about. And um, we started talking, and, and I'll never forget some of the things he said to us because he said, listen, some of the things that I've done and the things that I've seen you have no idea about. There's no way that God would want to have anything to do with me. And Nick and I, as, as unseasoned youth pastors, just new into ministry, were like, no, no, you don't understand, dude. Like, God loves you. We didn't know what else to say other than God loves you. We understand this, and you need to understand this. After the conversation went on for a while, finally, our roommate looked at us and he said, listen, you don't understand, because I know that when I'm, when I'm dead and gone, you know, Satan's got a seat right next to him ready for me, and God is going to be happy to send me there. We were heartbroken. Because our understanding of God was so different from his understanding of God. When we thought about God, we thought about a God of grace and mercy. A God that was just, but a God who was loving and who was kind. When this individual thought of God, he thought of nothing but shame and guilt that was in his life because God was angry with him. You see, the reason this story is so important at Christmas time is because the reveal that takes place here, the kind of God that we see, is so different from the kind of God that the world makes up for themselves. This son of God is so different from the other son of God. This kind of power is so different from the other kind of power. This Jesus who comes into the world reveals what God actually looks like. And it happens on really, really basic levels of our life as well. When we believe in a God who is angry and cosmically frustrated, it influences the way that we live. Even as a parent, when my, when my kids decide to be defiant, I've got a couple choices to make. If you're a parent in the room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What kind of power am I going to show my kids? Because too often I want to just go Pompeii, like shock and awe, get as angry as I can so my child will back down. Does it work? Never. That's not how power works. But we've been, we've been fooled into believing that it does. Power is not the iron fist and the sword. Power is sacrificial in nature. It's selfless in nature. It's the way we treat our coworkers or our in-laws or our neighbors or our enemies. Very much is dictated by the way that we see God. And it dictates the way we reveal to others what God is like. I don't believe power is like domination. It looks different than that. 
So does your God look like Caesar, or does your God look like Jesus? You see, the great surprise of Christmas is the the surprising discovery that, that God looks like Jesus. He reveals to us who he is and what he's like. And as people who strive to live our lives under the reign and rule of God, we take our cues from Christ. We take our cues from God. And we don't believe that power comes by military might or somehow being stronger or having power over. But instead, it looks like a God who pulls on flesh and blood, who comes in the midst of our mess powerless and vulnerable as a baby. We believe in a God who comes close. And we place our faith and our hope and our trust in this kind of God. It changes everything. It changes the way that we view ourselves and it changes the way we view others. Sacrificial love is where true power resides, and this is what God has put on display for us in Luke chapter 2. I don't know sacrificial love perfectly, but when I became a parent, I began to understand it more. If you're a parent in the room, you probably have had the same experience. I mean, when I got married, I pretty much still was living for myself. And even I made all these vows about loving my spouse the way that I should. I mean, I was so selfish still. But all of a sudden, sitting in a hospital room, holding my first son and looking at him in the face, it changed my whole world. Because for the first time I looked at him and I just thought, I would do anything for you. I would give anything for you. I would sacrifice it all. You're you're that important to me. This is the kind of love that I have for you. And, And the thing is, this is a microcosm of the kind of love and the kind of concern and the kind of care that God has for us. Jesus literally stepped out of heaven, gave it all up to come and become a human into a broken world. It's sacrificial love, and it's what real power looks like. I saw this on display years ago, maybe three years ago, when we took a group of young adults to the Dominican Republic. And we went to the Dominican to meet up with a, 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 an older lady who had been working there for many, many years. And this lady was about 5'5", five, five, 100 pounds, maybe, And she'd been working the Dominican for years and ministering to all these people. And she was the only person, the only one going to serve these men who were living in these prisons in in the Dominican Republic, in Sasua. And these prisons were awful. We walked in with her to this prison for the first time. And when we came in, there there was a, the heat in the room was unbearable. The stench in the room was unbearable. The prison room that we walked into and right in, in the hallway near was, was full of 50 men, so full they couldn't even sit down or lay down. And this is how they were living. And the whole world had forgotten about them, except for this one lady. I'll never forget because she walked up to the guard and the guard went with a key and opened the, the door to this prison cell and she walked right in. In the midst of all these men, five, five, 100 pounds. And she turned around and motioned to us for us to follow her. So in a room that was always already way too crowded, 15 more of us came in right behind her, and I watched this little lady take the hands of every single one of these men and pray with them and look at them in the eye and tell them that they are loved by God and express to them the reason this group right here has come from the United States to come spend time with you and bring food to you and bring these things to you is because there's a God who loves you and who cares about you. Man, that is what power looks like. It's not flexing muscles. It looks like a 5'5", 100-pound woman who understands that the love of God is the greatest power in the world, and it's sacrificial in nature. I saw for the very first time put on display that, that our God is a God who is for us. Our God is a God who's for us. 
That's what's revealed in the life of Jesus and the birth of Jesus, this Advent season, this great anticipation, this surprise. The power doesn't look like what we thought it looked like, but power looks like Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 14, the story continues on. We just read it a moment ago, but I'd like to read it again and point out a few things. Luke chapter 2, verses 18 through 14 says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were, what's it say? <laughs> Terrified. You would be too. I mean, this, is, this would be a shocking thing to take place within a field as shepherds watching your sheep. But not only that, but these shepherds lived under this Roman rule. They knew what fear was like. They knew what terror was like. And so for this thing to happen, this was the natural reaction to be terrified and to be fearful. This is all they knew. But look what it says. The first words that these angels speak to them is, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He's the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, what's it say? Peace. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is a different kind of peace than anyone else knew. It's a different kind of peace than Pax Romana. It's a different type of peace than a peace that's won by military might. This type of peace is a real, true, abiding peace that comes in Jesus. And the first people to hear this good news, this message of Jesus' birth, it did not come to the rich or the famous, the rulers or the emperors or the kings. It came to who? Shepherds. The scum of the earth. Untrusted, stinky, living out in the fields, these shepherds. The first ones to receive the message. You know what that says to me? This good news about Jesus, it is for everyone. It is for everyone. No matter what your socioeconomic status is, where you grew up, the color of your skin, how much money you make, how successful you are or unsuccessful you are, the good news of Jesus, this peace that passes all understanding, it is for everyone. And it's shown by coming to the shepherds first. And here's the message that's brought. Do not be afraid. I have good news. And the good news is this. Your God is not a God of sword and power over. Your God is a God who doesn't look like Caesar, but your God is a God who looks like Jesus, who comes humble and unassuming. Jesus' arrival reveals a God who is for us, truly for us. It's a demonstration of the Spirit's power, this birth of this baby. When I was a kid, we had a lot of family traditions at Christmas, and we're trying to make our own family traditions now, but one of my favorite ones as well was there was a farmer not far from where I lived who had a, uh, a little farm that he would put lights out every year, and it was kind of his thing, his ministry to the community, and there'd be literally hundreds of people who would come, and they would drive through this little farm and see all the lights and experience. It was beautiful. It was so fun, and we would load up as a family. I remember my, my aunt and uncle had a big Suburban. We'd all, like, get in the Suburban, rather unsafe, probably, and lay in the back, and I remember just pulling through this, this little farm, and we would get candy canes when you would get there. So it was like this whole experience. All your senses were engaged. You're eating candy canes. You're seeing all the lights. And 
I remember laying there and seeing these lights in the windows of the suburban as we drove through. It was awesome. And th- this family would do this all on their own just for people to come and experience. But what was amazing is when you got to the very end of the, this light show, after seeing everything, the angels and you know, Santa Claus and all these different things, you got to the very end, and all of a sudden there was a, there was a thing at the very end where there was a, a different symbol, something you didn't necessarily expect at Christmas, and it was Jesus on a cross. I remember driving by there and seeing that, and we went year after year after year, and, and still thinking back, that was one of the most important pieces of that entire, that entire light show. Because though you wouldn't expect it, this was what Christmas really, you can't celebrate the birth of Jesus in a manger without realizing what it's really about, and it's about a sacrifice on a cross. You see, the birth of Jesus was God coming close to us, but Jesus dying on the cross was God giving himself for us. And that will never leave me. So even to this day, when I celebrate Christmas, I don't just think about a baby born in a manger. I think about a man who gave his life so that I could have real life, true life. Here's how it's said in John chapter 3. You've heard this verse probably more than any other verse in all throughout Scripture. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says it this way so perfectly. It dovetails so nicely, these two pieces, Advent, Christmas, and Easter. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not send his son to condemn the world because God is not a Caesar. God sent his son Jesus to save the world through him because God looks like Jesus. Sacrificial love. God's power is sacrificial. I want you to hear this this morning. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know what Christmas means to you. I don't know what your experiences have been like, but I want you to know this. You are loved by God. The reveal of Jesus tells us you are loved by God and God is for you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just put up with you. He's not frustrated with you. He's not angry with you. But God loves you. And this is the very reason that he sends his son. Not to condemn you, but to rescue you. I mean, God loves you. If God had a cosmic refrigerator, your picture would be stuck right on it. If he had a massive wallet and would pull it out to show people, I mean, and pictures would fall out, your picture would be in it. God is crazy about you. And he's gone to great lengths, in fact, the greatest length, to make sure that you knew that, to make sure that was a reality within your life. And one of the best ways I think that we can honor Jesus the way he should be honored during this time of the season is to come to recognize that his sacrifice for our life should precipitate in our sacrifice for other people. We take our cues from Christ. God doesn't look like Caesar, he looks like Jesus. And this is how we choose to live our life as well. So as we close this morning, I want to give two very specific responses and opportunities this morning. Number one, maybe you've gone through this Christmas season year after year after year. And to you, it is just gifts and a Christmas tree and some Starbucks drinks and whatever else. But I want you to know this morning that it is much, much more. And, and there, there is a God who wants you to understand and recognize that he sacrificed everything for you because he loves you. And you can respond to that today by simply saying thank you. I'll live my life under your rule and your reign because it's not by an iron fist and a sword, but it's by grace and mercy and real love. 
And the next step for us, and we have a wonderful opportunity this Christmas to do this, is to then recognize that our sacrifice can reveal to other people the kind of God that we serve by us living sacrificial lives. Christmas Eve, and the reason I'm telling you now is because it gives you an opportunity over the next couple weeks to prepare for this. On Christmas Eve, we're going to have a special Advent offering. And this offering is going to go specifically toward making a difference in the world and changing people's lives um, in, a, in, a, in a way that, that is unbelievable. Because there are some heinous things that exist within our world that, that need to change, and we can be a part of that. This Advent offering is going to go to two different agencies that are working for the same cause, and that's to stop and end human trafficking. You know, you might think that, that people being bought and sold as commodities worldwide happen somewhere else far off away from us, but the truth is, if you've watched the news, it's happening right here in Colombia, right here, right now. Statistics say that any given day, there are over 100,000 children that are in human trafficking nationwide right now. There's an organization called Lighthouse for Life that we're going to partner with that part of our money is going to go to to help build rescue homes and safe homes for these children who are being rescued out of this kind of life to show them that there's a God who's come close and who cares about them and who loves them. The other portion of the money is going to go worldwide then and be a part of the same cause, though, in Calcutta, India. We have a couple that we're partnering with as a church right now who are doing amazing, amazing things. They have 160 orphan children they take care of right now themselves. And they're continuing to work to help with the 12.6 million people in India alone who are in human trafficking um, year in, year out. So we as a church have an opportunity to give sacrificially. Maybe a few less, less Starbucks drinks this Christmas. Maybe one less gift that you would give to someone within the family. Maybe as a, a family you'll decide together, you know, we're going to go without with, for some of these things so we can give sacrificially above and beyond on Christmas Eve to make a difference in the world in this kind of way. And here is what I know about God. He's in the business of changing lives. And what I love about him most, he's chosen to use us to do it. We have the opportunity by living a sacrificial life to reveal to the rest of the world around us a new kind of power, a sacrificial power that the world just simply does not understand. So would you join me this morning in praying and asking God to move in our hearts personally that we might know that he loves us, but also move us to make a difference in the world around us. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you this morning, God, so thankful, truly grateful that you've gone to great lengths to reveal to us the kind of love and care and concern that you have for us. I pray for any person here this morning, God, who has a distorted view of who you are, God, who sees you as, as someone who's angry and frustrated. I pray, God, you would help us, our hearts and our minds, to be shifted to, to understand and see the kind of care and concern that you have for us like a father who would do anything for his children and who has done everything for his children. I pray that today, God, that you would change our hearts to become sacrificial people, to realize that that's the kind of power that changes the world when we give of ourselves, when we take our cues from Jesus. Lord, we love you, and we pray that during this Advent season that we would truly anticipate Wait with bated breath to experience the Christ child once again. May you birth within our hearts, God, a newness, an excitement for your kingdom. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.